This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. Hello, a very happy Thursday to you. It is March the 17th. My name is John Dunn. Now here on the Best Friends Podcast, we talk a lot about the programs and approaches that can help you be more effective at saving the lives of pets. And a little bragging, I'm proud to say that I think we do a pretty good job at it. But the things we do talk about, a lot of them, they're big, right? These programs and approaches that for many of you are a fundamental shift away from what you're currently doing. Change isn't easy. It's not easy to manage internally with your team or externally with volunteers and the public. Oftentimes, implementing new programs requires new staff or at least a realignment of your current structure. Budgets may have to change. Maybe you're hoping to start a new capital fundraising campaign to build a new facility. All of those things are risks. They're changing what you're doing for the better, ideally, but risks all the same. Now, while it's not true for everyone, the experts say that for most humans, we tend to not be so much risk averse, but loss averse. We don't like to do things that will rock the boat when things are working okay. And that's particularly understandable as we talk about these living beings that we are tasked to care for. But this is a field that requires us to take risks, to be bold. Because what you were doing 20 years ago, well, hell, I mean, with the way our field is evolving, maybe what you were doing three, four, five years ago is unlikely to be something that is as effective as what we know today. And with 100,000 more pets in shelters than at the same time last year, taking risks isn't just a good thing to do. It's imperative. So I sat down with two of my colleagues here at Best Friends, two people who have taken big risks in their own careers prior to coming to Best Friends when they were running their own organizations. And today, Stacy Rogers is the Great Plains and Midwest Regional Director, and McKenna Yarborough is the Senior Director of Regional Programs. Oh, and, and by the way, we'd love to hear from you about this. What are risks you've taken in your career? Risks that worked, that didn't? What helped push you to take those risks? Email is podcast at bestfriends.org. How did you fail and how did you use those failures to learn and grow? Podcast at bestfriends.org. McKenna, Stacy, thank you both for taking the time. Uh, McKenna, I want to start with you. I mean, let's just talk about risks, how we approach them, how we manage them, uh, you know, how we can mitigate. I mean, this is always a relevant topic, I think, but right now, our world does seem riskier than it has for a while. Uh, you know, in 2022, we've got all the same risks that we would have in discussions around programmatic changes, but we've also got COVID on top of that, right? And that adds a whole nother layer. Before I hit record on this, you know, we were just talking about travel and getting back to normal life, whatever that means. Well, in general, I think that it's human nature to be afraid of failure, right? It's a normal feeling to not want to try something different because you don't want to fail, right? You know, it's funny because my mom's, one of my mom's favorite phrases that I grew up just, I repeat to myself constantly, if in doubt, don't, right? If in doubt, don't do it. But I have not taken her advice over the many, many years because I can tell you that I'm in this field because I took a risk. I had two jobs to choose from. One was going with a marketing um, advertising company in Richmond. The other was taking a pay cut and going to work for a humane organization in Richmond. And obviously I took the humane organization in Richmond because I followed my heart. And I think that at the core of taking risks 
in my mind is a, is it the right thing to do? You know, what, what happens if you fail, if you fail and nothing is catastrophic, then I think you take the risk, always try something new in order to see and grow yourself into something new. You can't, you can't advance in this world without trying something new or changing who you are to some degree. Who I was 20 years ago is completely different than who I am now. And that's all because of all the risks and chances and opportunities I grabbed onto, including this job at Best Friends. I mean, trust me, leaving an organization that I was the executive director of for nine years, successful, very well known in my community to a national organization starting something completely new that I had no idea what I was going into was a real scary moment for me personally. But obviously I took the leap because what's the worst that could have happened? I didn't like it. Find another job. And I think that the other thing my dad used to say, my parents, is you will regret what you don't try or what you don't do. You won't regret trying new things. Does that make sense? Like in life, the things you regret are the things you didn't do, not the things. Even today, I have a list of things I still need to do this week and I regret not having done them last week. So sometimes taking that that leap of faith and challenging yourself to do something different or new or taking the bungee jumping ride off of the bridge is something you won't regret. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. I think I'd actually regret bungee jumping. It would be no different than me going into a pit full of snakes. Like I hate snakes. I'm afraid of snakes. That's the thing for me is snakes. Bungee jumping wasn't scary for me, but once you jump off the bungee jumping platform, you come back up and you're like, thank God I did it. And then it gives you that same exact sensation as you jump, as you fall again, and then you do it a few more times. And then you think, wow, just once was all I needed. I didn't need to do it twice. Yeah, it's not going to be a bucket list item for me, but you know, maybe there is a lesson there about making sure you fully understand what's involved. McKenna, maybe you wouldn't have done it if you realized that you were going to be bobbing up and down. And it wasn't just one bungee jump. It was bungee jump and dangle. Well, Stacy, hey, thank you also for being here. Kind of opposite to McKenna's mom's advice. I always say nothing worth doing isn't a little bit scary. <laughs> but you know, if you're going to bungee jump, you're not going to let, you're not going to hook yourself into the harness by yourself and not know how to do it. Because <laughs> that's too much risk. You want to make sure that when you're going to take that risk, that you're balanced and that you have a good idea of what you have as backup, but still you know, if groups don't take risks, they just get really complacent. You know, I got some feedback from a shelter recently that said, you know, I've been doing this 25 years. Why would I upset the apple cart now? We do it. We're fine. We don't want your help. And so you get kind of the opposite of those groups on that end who are like, we've always done it this way. We see no push to change it. And then you have those groups that are really big and successful, but they don't want to take any risks because they're comfortable in the place that they're at. So it's trying to get them into that mindset that once you take that risks, you can really maximize your impact. You're never going to grow as an organization. You're never going to save more animals or help your community more or raise your save rate if you don't start thinking about the calculated risks that you can take to get there. McKenna, just back to your example of moving careers, I don't want to downplay a career decision as a low risk. Of course, it's huge. It's a big life decision. But I'm guessing that for you, the position in your life at that point, you were in a better position than most to be able to take a risk like that. And again, not to say that 
it wasn't a risk for you to do it. It's just that's part of risk taking, right? Evaluating all the different factors of what may be and then trying to make a, a really informed decision. No, I agree. I mean, making a career choice or making a career change for me to go to best friends, there wasn't a whole lot of risk there other than not being happy, which for me is a big risk. How do you decide whether the risk is a good risk to take or not? And so one of the things I've talked about in other um in other sessions or other conference sessions is to decide if you're making decisions based on fear or if you're looking at the facts around the decision or are you looking at the results for the decision. So if you're deciding not to change because you're afraid to, then I think it's time to evaluate that fear. Like, why are you afraid not to to do it? What are the risks? What are the true risks? Is it something that's going to really hurt your organization? I think more times than not, it won't. I think more times than not, to take a look at a policy change or to risk altering the vision or mission for your organization, you can try it. If you're truly that afraid, make a small change. See how it goes. Try it and track it is one of the phrases I've often said many million times to shelter leaders. Just try it and track. See, see if your fears come true. Did you start a managed intake program and all of a sudden you started having more stray intake or you started to see more animals abandoned at your shelter, then making that change, your fears came true. But if you made the change and there was no increase of strays, there was no increase of animals being neglected or abandoned and pick a time frame, say six months, let's try it and track it. If you change your adoption policies, try it for three months and track to see how many returns you got. So I guess what I would say is there's always a way to make change and to do so comfortably rather than jumping off the cliff with the bungee jump. Like you don't have to jump off a cliff. You can just do it slowly. You can repel slowly down the cliff. Yeah, I think, you know, we talk to shelters, we encourage them start a pilot program, especially if you're a municipal shelter and you might not have the ability to change something permanently, see if you can convince them to do a pilot and track all of your data. If you're a rescue group and you're really fearful of changing your adoption policies because, you know, you're comfortable and they can all get placed and you know they're in homes and they're in fosters. And so you're happy placing 500 dogs a year. If you take that risk and you eliminate home checks and you eliminate some of the things that are taking you time, can you place a thousand dogs a year and you're helping more dogs and cats get into homes in the end? You know, just try it for a little bit. See, did anything catastrophic happen when you stopped calling landlords to see if pets were allowed in that building? Because in most cases, nothing catastrophic is going to happen in large scale. We talk to groups about open adoptions and they're like, oh, but, you know, returns are going to go went up so much when we started lowering our adoption barriers. You know, look at those returns as a percentage of how many animals you placed into homes. And they're probably the same or lower than they were before. It just seems like more because you're helping so many more as they go through. So it's, you know, just measuring that, looking at the data, seeing if that risk really did come with a reward or a challenge with it and trying to be risky and doing it quickly. Don't take two years to come up with the new plan for how you're going to reevaluate your programs. Get an idea, come back from a conference, be excited and take that risk and see if you can pilot one new thing for the next three months. I don't think anyone would disagree that we have to take risks with the work, programmatic decisions like say open adoptions. Uh, Of course, the three of us are on board with open adoptions, but I think the risk that many who are resistant to changing things like adoption policies is that in our work, 
we're talking about living, breathing beings. Yeah, and I think sometimes that fear is if you have to trust your community, you also don't trust that they're going to stay engaged with you. Sometimes we have those groups that are like, well, if I'm really transparent about what's happening inside the walls of our building, we're going to lose that mass of supporters that we have out there because they think that we're doing really well. And if we admit that maybe things aren't as great as what they are, we're going to get attacked publicly. You need to trust the people out there that they're coming to you with the right thing, but you also need to trust that if you're really transparent and open about your struggles and what you're wanting to fix and where you do have issues, that the community in turn is going to help and not try to hinder you. Stacy, how do we evaluate risks? Is it as simple as a piece of paper, a pen, couple of columns, pros and cons, weigh it out? You know, I know you counsel shelters and rescue organizations on this. Is there a process that you would recommend? I mean, I think look at what program you want to do. Work on your SOPs for it. Make sure you know exactly how it's going to work and how you're going to deal with any negatives that do happen. You know, if you're going to open up your adoption policies, what resources do you have if those adopters come back to you needing help? Because a big part of that is making sure that they, having that policy, having them feel good about it, they're going to feel comfortable coming back when they do need help. So you want to have something there for them. You know, if you're doing something that's going to cost a significant amount of money, has your financial person looked at it and made sure that you have the budget there to do that or that you can handle that type of budget increase? How are you going to pay for it if you need to increase your budget? You know, who do you have a funder that might support something new for you so that you can give it a try for a pilot program? You know, work out all of those little details of how you're going to do it, how you're going to pay for it, what staff people are going to cover it, and what bad things could happen. And if they do happen, how are you going to deal with it? A few years ago at Best Friends, I was part of a team working on a program for transporting kittens uh, within the same community. Uh, neonatal kittens and the work that was done to go through all of the risks, right? Transport. So it's insurance and driver background checks and not to say that we shouldn't be doing those things, but the process became so cumbersome and the thousands of kittens in need every year in LA weren't being helped in the way that a transport idea like that could have helped. So it's like we were almost over mitigating it to the point of like not actually executing on this program. And I mean, you can always change. You can go back and you can reevaluate. It's like, okay, that part of it didn't work. You know, I'll give the example of the time we took a risk to expand our programs and we messed up and we changed it again. We did a neuter for a nickel cat event. We got really excited. It was going to be our first time doing outside spay neuter. And we decided it'd be really easy to check them in at the outside building of the shelter and then wagon them across to the building where we were going to do the surgeries, which worked great until a crate came open and we lost a cat into the woods. <laughs> So, you know, we hunted for him. We we could not find the cat. So when the people came, we had to explain, you know, the you know, cat number three that you brought in escaped. We have traps set. We can't find him. And after dealing with the fallout from that the next time, we did not transport the cats from one building to the next for the next neuter event. We checked them in in our lobby because we realized that that was too much of a risk to take them apart across. But, you know, you have to just sometimes recalibrate and figure out okay, that didn't work so great. Next time we're going to try it this way, make sure that we have more risk assessment there as we do it. But, you know, we couldn't have neutered 135 cats that day if we didn't take the risk to try to go out and do it. Some folks may be listening to this and saying the life of that one cat, that one dog, it can be enough for someone to, to not take a risk. Like I said earlier, living, breathing beings, right? And I get that. But, you know, in some communities, we're talking about hundreds or thousands even of animals that can't be helped, won't be helped 
because the capacity isn't there, because we're maybe not pushing ourselves to do a little bit more. Uh, you know, listen, I'm not saying these things are easy, but I think this is just, I mean, it has to be part of the conversation. I get that. And I, and I understand that fear. And I, when I see things on Facebook about organizations being afraid of changing their adoption policies because they don't want to place them in bad homes, this is not a popular belief. But I guarantee you, even as restrictive as your adoption policies are, you've had bad adoptions. So isn't it better to be more trusting of the community, develop those relationships with the community so that you can follow up more readily to make sure it's a better fit rather than restricting people and setting a bad tone from the beginning? You know, look, I came into an organization 12 years ago, changed everything on a dime. Like I walked in, everything in the organization changed within a week, our adoption policies being one of them. And the minute that I changed the adoption policies was the turning point for us as an organization to be more accepting of human beings in our community. And they got more involved and they helped us with the problem more quickly. So you, if you come to the public with, we trust you, we believe that you're in this building for the right reasons. So let's just have an open conversation. It doesn't mean you don't turn down people for adoption. It just means that you're having an open, honest conversation with someone. You're probably more likely to find out the truth than if you make them all check boxes. Do you see what I mean? It's, it's a matter of trusting and developing those relationships versus being fear and shutting down those relationships. And that in and itself will result in less people being involved to help you in the future with your problems. When I hear shelter leaders say, I've been in the field for 30 years, it's how we've always done it, we're not going to change, it makes me think back to when I was starting in this field 20 years ago, boy, I've changed a lot. I've learned a lot, right? In this field, as you learn, you should be changing. It's no different than going to a doctor that's practicing 30-year-old medicine. Would you go to a doctor practicing 30-year-old medicine? Why wouldn't you want to grow and learn and try new things to save more animals? Again, I feel like people are afraid. So let's really dive into what you're afraid of and decide whether or not it's a true fear or if it's you're setting policy based on a few bad apples rather than the greater good who could actually help you. You shared the story, Stacey, of that cat escaping into the woods during your spay and neuter event. Uh, and, you know, listen, it's not meant to make you feel guilty and I don't really want to dredge this kind of stuff up. But I do think as we talk about risk and and what that means, I, examples are important. You know, his name was Fred. I'll remember him forever because I chased him as far as I could go until I couldn't get any further. Well, I'm sorry to, to have to talk about that. But I, I think, you know, something like that in the context of this conversation, I think the right term for that probably is a fail, a failure. And that's, again, part of risk-taking, right? We try, we fail, and we tweak, and we try again. And it's just the nature of risk. Even the low-risk stuff as a leader, you know, turning a, an empty space into a ringworm room, a, a new fundraising event, new partnership with an outside agency. It's all about, you know, moving resources from one area to another. It's just change. Maybe it works. Maybe not. But I don't think we can afford to be risk averse. The animals need us to be bold, quite frankly. Leaving my first best friends conference, we realized as we were looking at it, we're like, you know, we've been protecting the animals to death 
we had such restrictive adoption policies and, you know, we were doing all of the formal temperament tests to make sure we thought they were safe to go out. And we were doing pit bull home checks and insurance checks and just all of this ridiculous stuff. We weren't placing feral cats in barns because we thought that they would be unsafe if they went out of the shelter. So we were euthanizing them instead because we couldn't release them legally. And we kind of realized as we left, like all of this, everything we were doing, thinking we were protecting the animals was actually making our shelter a much more dangerous place for an animal to enter. And we needed to take some risks if we were going to save more. And we just, we did kind of bungee jump. We came back and we changed everything at once and said, you know, get on the bus with us. This is what we're going to do. We're going to save more animals as of tomorrow. These are all the policy changes we're making. Uh, Dan Pallotta, I don't know if you uh, both are familiar with him, but he's someone I admire a great deal. Uh, maybe most well-known for a TED Talk he did on charity effectiveness ratings, uh, which by, I want to have him on the podcast, by the way. I've emailed a couple of times, haven't heard back. So if anyone knows Dan Pallotta and can hook me up, email me at podcast at bestfriends.org. Uh, but Dan has a quote on failure, which I love. When you prohibit failure, you kill innovation. If you kill innovation in fundraising, you can't raise more revenue. If you can't raise more revenue, you can't grow. And if you can't grow, you can't possibly solve large social problems. So I have a, I have a phrase that I have up on. I have a vision board for 2022. And what it says is, what would you attempt to do if you knew you could not fail? I mean, I failed a lot over the many years of my career. One of the biggest failures we ever had was in Lynchburg when we decided to manage another shelter that was an hour away, it was a very difficult transition for us. And I got to say, every time I have failed, I have learned something extremely valuable that allows me to move forward to either not do it again, obviously, because when you fail, you don't want to repeat it, but it helped me see a different side of my own self in a sense to grow and change and and develop into the person that I am. Every failure I've ever had. Um, and it makes for really good stories at parties when you fail. Maybe that's why I, I have a lot of stories to tell. I guess I've failed a lot. Uh, McKenna, that decision you mentioned about working in the neighboring county uh, of your organization at the time, the Lynchburg Humane Society in Virginia. So that didn't work. Uh, and maybe it's unique to that situation, but interested to know what did you learn and how did those learnings get applied into uh, future work? So I learned a lot about hiring the right people. We started off hiring the wrong people to run that shelter for us. And I didn't listen to my gut. If in doubt, don't. And I didn't listen to myself to say, you have a doubt, you shouldn't hire these people. And we did anyway. And that unfortunately started off on the wrong foot. And we, and we also went into that contract in that situation without enough time to properly set it up. So what I have learned is that a lot of times I'm smarter than I really realize, and I don't give myself enough credit to stop and say, I can't do what they want us to do. I have to do what's best for our organization to set this up in the long run properly. And listening to myself was a lesson that I had to learn through that process and not listening sometimes to other people. That project also taught a lot, taught me a lot about community engagement, taught me more than I did with the success that we had in Lynchburg, going into a community who we had no 
real footprint there as an as an organization to build that community up to get them engaged in what we are trying to do in a very rural environment was different. And so I learned quite a bit about how to operate a rural shelter, also about how much the community can hurt your organization as well. Lynchburg was built up from nothing to build up a very positive community engagement. People loved us at the end of our um, at the end of my tenure when I left. Organizations very strong. Going into a brand new community, thinking we could say, "Oh, here we're Lynchburg. We're awesome. We're great." They didn't care who we were. And so what I learned was a lot about staffing, a lot about listening to my gut and listening to myself and doing what's right. And a lot about how to better market and run an organization in a very rural town with very little resources. Partnerships, so much of the work today we're realizing has the intersections with social service work, you know, pets in need, likely the pets person also uh, needs help. And I think this is a good example of how to take risks But with a partnership, I'm not saying you blame the partner, obviously, if something doesn't work, but I think there's strength in numbers and having more folks involved can often be a really good thing. Yeah, actually, you bring up a really good point. That's why coalitions work so well. It's a group of people wanting to make a change, not just one organization taking the brunt of it. It's kind of what you're saying, which is actually something that we did in in Richmond. We pulled together a group of people, a group of organizations to help us with some community cat programming and spay neuter efforts. So that is a great technique. If you yourself are afraid of doing something in the community or changing an ordinance, having a group of people come together to speak in favor of it gives it a little bit more credibility as well. If there's a takeaway from COVID, I think we should all remember how external factors out of our control can really, really mess things up. Yes, there were silver linings from COVID. Great. Not all bad, but it was very disruptive. And there are more things coming externally, right? I read an article recently about climate change and I mean, millions of Americans living in coastal areas with the sea level rise, they're going to be displaced. And that's coming sooner than we want to believe. Again, all to say stuff is coming and we'll have to take risks and innovate and find ways to support pets and pet owners. So if you're a decision maker, but you know, you're not really a risk taker, no time like the present to push yourself. Yeah. How much have we pivoted in the last two years? I hate that word, but I mean, every organization I would think has had to pivot to some degree, uh, whether that's lack of staffing, whether that's having to close because of COVID. So you're right. I think that Changes is become a natural state over the last few years. I think even now, like we mitigated risk in the beginning by saying, oh, set up adoption appointments. Like that's your best way to not be too risky, but still keep animals moving. And now we have a lot of groups like, oh, I love adoption appointments. I love not having people walk through the kennels, but we have a lot more animals now sitting in shelters because they're not getting the same viewing that they were before. And now it's that question of like, yeah, we need to take a little bit of risk again and get people into the shelters, get animals moving out of the shelters. I just saw one of my biggest partners, they're doing their first mega adoption event since March of 2020, coming up this weekend for St. Patrick's Day. It's like, okay, yeah, take that risk, get lots of people in, get lots of dogs out. We can't have 100,000 more dogs and cats sitting in shelters right now than were last year. We need to figure out what risks we need to take 
to now pivot again and get animals back into homes. Yeah, Stacy said something that made me think of something. You know, we we pivoted to close down and still be able to move animals out. And I think that a, some organizations haven't pivoted back, which what we're seeing is that they're 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 holding animals longer than they should. And I think that sometimes organizations set up these procedures to get animals out, but then don't reevaluate them to say they need to shift and change again. Like rescues getting emails with all the list of animals that are at risk. If you've been doing it that way for the last three years, perhaps it's time to evaluate it, especially if it's not working anymore, because people are receiving information differently. Um, Now it's a lot of Trello boards are being used for um, managing transport partners or rescue partners. Facebook has become another venue for having groups that want to pull from you. But what I would say is that looking at all of your policies every year is always a good thing. If nothing else, to see what's new is out there, if there's a way to save more animals or there's a way to help more people in the community, I think having a yearly check-in to say what's working, what's not, what could we make better? So as we wrap up, I just want to give another shout out to planning and not just for a pilot project. I mean, longer range strategic planning, you know, really making sure you're pushing your shelter, your rescue, pushing your staff and your board so your organization continues to evolve. It's really like if you're looking at a strategic and your plan is essentially to do the same thing you've done for the last five years, but just build it into the next five. Like, I think, you know, yeah, there are some things you're going to want in there. Like, you know, we want to increase revenue this much. We want to do this, but put some bigger goals out there into your strategic plan. You know, do you want to expand into community work? Do you want to be able to expand the number of animals you help a year? Kind of put those stretch goals out that are going to take a little bit more risk. You know, if right now you're transporting, you know, you're a large organization, you're transporting animals from the South, but you primarily take fluffy dogs, puppies, things that you know are going to move really fast when they come in the door. Put in a reach goal, how many heartworm positive dogs you want to transfer in every year, you know, how many seniors, how many blocky headed dogs you want to bring in the things that might seem risky for your organization right now, figure out how you want to bring them in and figure out your plan on how you're going to bring them in and how you're going to get them back out. Any final thoughts? Try it. Try it and track it. I mean, I I would go to a conference and come back every time with a new thing to try. And we would try it within a few weeks. And don't take too long to try new things. Thank you to Bethany Hines, Kayla Sebo, Whitney Blyton, Tawny Hammond, and Mark Peralta for helping to produce this program. My name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast.